Well, it's my great pleasure now to briefly introduce um, this evening's speaker, Professor Ute Frevert. Some of you who are not so acquainted with the academic field might not have resisted the temptation to look up the name where you, who you go to listen to this evening and consult it, as one does in modern times, Wikipedia, and you would have uh, discovered a very interesting sentence. Ute Frevert is a German historian. She's a specialist in modern and contemporary uh, Germany with an interest in social and gender history. Now, this is almost British uh, understatement. (laughs) Uh, Ute Frevert is certainly one of the most inspiring historians in not only of Germany, who had and still has an enormous impact on the development of the field of social and cultural history in a wider sense internationally by opening up several new avenues of reconceptualizing research on society and social structures, which went very soon well beyond the model of the societal uh, history, the Gesellschaftsgeschichte, of Bielefeld, where she received her PhD in 1982. She wrote then already a very innovative study on illness as a political problem, 1770 to 1880, the lower classes in Prussia uh, between medical police administration and state-supported social insurance. That was my very free translation of the title. As someone who works a lot on the social history of poverty, I can say that this is still a benchmark uh, study on medical care for the lower classes in 19th century Germany. At the same time, it has set for Ute Frevert in Nutze already a topic which he was to return to later in a new theoretical context, which is the history of the political in the sense uh, that one can ask what uh, how is it that some things do become political and how are things being politicized? This was a topic which she took up later again in the context of a uh, research cluster by the German Research Foundation in uh, Bielefeld on the political as Kommunikationsraum uh, space of communication. Ute Frever did her second book, her Habilitation, also in Bielefeld and again on another really fascinating topic which led her to the core of the German male, namely the duel. Men of Honour, a social and cultural history of the duel is the title of the English translation of the book which appeared in 1995 with Polity Press in Oxford uh, in an English translation. The original German original is 1991. This is a really fascinating study which opened up again for Ute Frevert another topic which is still with her until today which is the history of emotions. It isn't restricted on that but of course it is uh, touches on that field, how is it that honour was once such an important and highly gendered emotion which has more or less entirely lost its former power over men and women and that not only of course in Germany. And of course the book uh, just on a sideline gives a nice uh, story also which is sort of pertains to uh, our patron saint Max Weber who nearly got into a duel himself because he was his wife was insulted by <laughs> one of his younger colleagues and was it not for Marianne Weber 
um, probably Dr. Rosenbach would now be chair of a charity looking at the Max Weber Foundation looking after <laughs> Marianne's Weber's adopted children and uh, descendants. So because the name <laughs> might have been uh, <laughs> otherwise uh, taken. However, on, more, on a more serious note, uh, this is a really brilliant book and it was received uh, very well and uh, really deserved the acclaim it got and it paved the way to quite an extraordinary career, not only as academic teacher but also as an inspiring innovator in the wider field of social history, gender history and the history of emotions, which soon became Ute Frevert's main field of interest. Career-wise, uh, Ute Frevert became professor first at the Free University in Berlin, then at Konstanz, coming from this area myself. I don't know how one would ever like to want to leave this uh, corner of the world, but Ute Frevert thought she had to go back to Bielefeld just in order to leave it again after six years for a position a professorship at Yale, and from where she then received the irresistible offer to become one of the directors of the Max Planck Institute for Human Development, which was now with her uh, supplemented with a Centre for the History of Emotions. And over the past years, uh, this centre has become a real hub of innovative interdisciplinary research on this really fascinating field of uh, social, cultural anthropological history. Ute Frevert is now one of the world's leading uh, researchers and uh, also conceptual thinkers on the changing nature of our emotional infra infrastructure, the emotionale möblierung, so to speak, and the way this influences, this change influences society, politics, and perhaps sometimes even academia. Despite being the director of a huge institute, Ute Frevert has remained an incredible, incredibly prolific academic researcher. Her publication list comprises over 15 or about 15 monographs, innumerable edited volumes and scholarly articles. She is member of many academic boards, received the highest academic prize in Germany, the Leibniz Prize, is member of the Berlin Brandenburgische Academy, uh, Academy of Science and uh, Humanities, the German Academy uh, of Sciences, Leopoldina, a correspondent fellow of the British Academy of the Humanities and Social Sciences. Oh, are you now a full member, no, corresponding member? She's signed the thing this afternoon. Um, but what I like most is her position as a member of the Board of Trustees for Education and Culture in the Advisory Board of the Deutsche Bahn Foundation. <laughs> and I'm, I'm quite sure, I'm quite sure she is a spy there and her main aim, in fact, is to inspire Deutsche Bahn-funded research in the um, emotions of frustrated customers <laughs> who have thoroughly lost their... Uh, their trust in the in Britain proverbial punctuality of German trains. I don't know whether that was the appropriate link to your topic tonight, which is the moral economy of trust 
modern trajectories, so it might have something to do with the Deutsche Bahn, but I don't know. Uh, anyway, Ute, welcome very much to the German Historical Institute. Thank you for talking to us tonight. And over to you. <laughs> While it warms up, let me say thank you, just as Helen did, for inviting me and um, giving me the, um, or bestowing the honor on me to give the annual lecture. Although I think I never did it before, but this room feels so uh, familiar. And I don't know how, how often I've actually been here for conferences uh, throughout my long career that Andreas was so kind to sum up in su such flattering words. It's, um, yeah, sometimes I like to listen to these kind of words, although I, <laughs> although I never quite believe them. Um, I'm, I was myself kind of trying to find a way to link Helen's very important research on bystanders and memorial culture of uh, concentration camps to what I have to say now. There is a link, but it's not an immediate link, so I'll resist the temptation of drawing it or um, too early, you might find out uh, while listening to this lecture. Why bother about trust? That's probably everybody asks himself, herself that question, except for Jeff, Jeffrey Hosking, who is here tonight. Uh, I'm very happy that you're here because he's the one that shares this uh, infatuation with, I wouldn't say obsession, but infatuation with trust uh, with me. He has been sharing it for quite some time, and although we um, have very different uh, approaches, but that's good in, in academia. So why bother about trust? What can we gain from a history of trust and what is modern, moral and economic about it? These are the questions that I would like to address here in two steps. First, I will discuss trust as an effective state and attitude that has become part of the modern emotional lexicon. I will explain why, when and where providing some examples that illustrate the instrumental value of trust in what I consider as moral economies of the modern period. Second, I will re-evaluate the concept of moral economy, connecting it with what Francis Hutchinson nearly three centuries ago named the economy of, I don't know how they translated it, in seven, or how they pronounced it in 1723, uh, economy, economy of passions, affections, and inclinations. In the last decade or so, historians have increasingly become interested in what is now called the history of emotions. This can be achieved, such a history can be achieved in two ways. On the one hand, by tracing the effect of emotions on motivating human actions. On the other hand, and more crucially, by producing thoroughly historicized notions of feelings, sentiments, passions, and affects. Trust here can serve as a good example. At first glance, trusting a person seems to be a universal human behavioral trait. Psychoanalysts like Eric Erickson talk about basic trust as something that small children develop 
through their interaction with their mother. And in the 1950s, when he wrote about Urvertrauen and basic trust, it was, of course, only mothers that children interacted with. But do all children develop basic trust? And if trust is supposed to be a feeling that is acquired through learning, and that depends on experiencing reliability, can we then assume that this feeling is available to each and everyone, regardless of social circumstances and cultural mappings? To ask even more critical questions, are Ericsson's findings universally and historically valid? Is trust always and everywhere generated through the mother-child interaction? What would people living in ancient, medieval, or early modern societies say? Reading texts is required in order to find out their opinions on trust. Famous household texts such as the Holy Bible, highbrow texts from philosophers or poets, educational texts such as Mirrors for Princes that became popular during the late Middle Ages, merchants' notebooks informing us about the vicissitudes of trading operations. It might also involve examining pictures. This is a Flemish tapestry that was given to Charles V for his wedding in 1526. Here, Fiducia, you see her in a detail, was shown as one of those virtues subservient to justitia, justice. The moral message was that the emperor should practice and gain trust in order to appear as and be a just ruler. Trust here belonged to the semantics of love and friendship and was closely tied to veritas or truthfulness. Only someone who was authentic and despised cheating and treachery was deemed <coughs> trustworthy. Court culture did not exactly lend itself to veritas and fiducia. In 1513, Niccolo Machiavelli openly declared that only appearances mattered. Princes had to be cunning as foxes in order to rule successfully. At the same time, they should pretend to be pious, loyal, benevolent, and honest. In his German translation of the Bible, Martin Luther warned against trusting others and, above all, never to trust those who were powerful. The only exception concerned trusting God. A century later, the Spanish Jesuit Baltasar Gracian advised worldly wise men to trust today's friends as if they were tomorrow's enemies. In the same vein, the first German language encyclopedia, published in 1746, defined trust as something hardly recommendable among human beings. The author distinguished between substantiated and unsubstantiated forms of trust. Only that person who is not only able but also willing to improve my lot and would do so on a regular basis deserved my trust. Since human beings were generally volatile, inconsistent, and fragile, they could not be trusted. God, on the other hand, was strong, <laughs> unchanging, and benevolent, and thus the only one 
to deserve people's trust under all circumstances. Warnings such as Zedler's were commonplace during pre-modern times. Trust and trustworthiness, although cherished as major virtues, seem to be in scarce supply. While human relations were thought to lack stability and consistency, the only safe haven of trust seemed to be with God. Those who placed their trust in him did not have to worry about the future, a future that was beyond their reach anyway. Dangers and existential threats loomed everywhere. Famines, wars, epidemics, disease, earthquakes, floods. And since no one could do anything to prevent those threats and dangers, trust in God helped people to stay calm, composed, and confident. That sounds like a piece of pragmatic advice considering the basic insecurities people faced in those times. Furthermore, it fits nicely in the mental map of medieval or early modern societies that were profoundly shaped by Christian faith and religion. During the 18th century, however, those maps began to change, and Siedler's article was already part of those changes. Although he devoted 11 out of 15 pages, uh, columns, to trust in God, he also mentioned, though disapprovingly, modern tendencies to trust in other people's help. Ziedler dismissed those tendencies as flaws and weaknesses, attributing them to those in favor of modernizing trends. Erneuerte and Erneuerung were contemporary buzzwords used by reformist movements in education and theology. Among pietists and Methodists, everyday piety and common religious practices ranked very highly. As much as they praised brotherly unity among the members of their congregations, they valued loving trust as a shared bond. In a similar vein, pedagogues started to preach the gospel of trust as a vital part of teacher-student relations. Enlightenment thinkers confirmed that only those rulers who use their power in well-ordered and benevolent way deserve their people's good and joyful trust, while others could merely claim obedience and submission. In 1753, French encyclopédistes defined confiance approvingly as the effect of the knowledge, that's my translation, as the effect of the knowledge and good opinion that we have of the qualities of someone else regarding our attitudes, our needs, our goals, and more generally, any given interest. Confiance, then, consists in reposing this interest more perfectly on that other person than on ourselves. Trust thus entered the modern emotional lexicon as a positive feeling that was widely encouraged and enthusiastically promoted. New trust words appeared in everyday speech, as German dictionaries testified. People started to talk about Vertrauensfragen, Vertrauenslehrer, Vertrauensärzte, Vertrauensämter, Vertrauensbeweise, and many more. At the same time, the opposite of trust, distrust or mistrust, was mentioned less and less frequently. 
This did not mean, of course, that it no longer existed. The old saying, trau, schau wem, check before your trust, or rather trust but look closely if the trusted person deserves trust. This old saying did by no means lose currency, but it was pitched against a profoundly affirmative interpretation of trust that emphasized its advantages, opportunities, and gains. It was clear that a trusting person was seen as an amiable person, as someone who was sought after for being generous, open, frank, and sympathetic to her fellow citizens. A distrustful person, by contrast, was someone you did not really want to be friends with. Examining definitions and explanations of trust as they appeared in 19th, century, 19th and 20th century lexicons and dictionaries, there is one major change. The reference to God, which had been so prominent in 1746, completely disappeared. While Luther or Zedler had declared God as the only reliable recipient of trust, later authors instead recommended trusting people this was, as a, um, this was a decisive departure from older ways of thinking about trust. It also marks the beginning of a new regulative idea or principle in Kantian terms. According to this idea, societies should be organized in such a way as to allow their members to trust each other. Trust, as sociologist Georg Simmel wrote around 1900, Trust was the glue that made social integration possible. Without trust, human interaction and cooperation was bound to fail and societies would fall apart. But trust was not a natural occurrence. There were certain structures and conditions that enabled it and others that rendered it highly improbable. Institutions like the middle-class family with strong emotional bonds and long-term commitment seemed to be perfect breeding places of trust. This was discovered more than a century before Ericsson wrote so positively about the mother-child diet as the primordial trusting relationship, establishing and nurturing a child's trust. 19th century advice manuals increasingly urged mothers to enable their children to build trust by behaving lovingly consistently and trustingly, trustingly themselves. This distrust would weaken a child morally, while trust would promote his very best faculties. Experiencing trust would strengthen the child's learning abilities to trust others. As Friedrich Fröbel, an important educator and, as many people know, founder of the German kindergarten, claimed in the early 1820s, others could be kin and family, those others could be kin and family members, but ultimately extended to encompass all people and even the state. Next to family, friendship was deemed to be a sphere that promoted learning and practicing trustful relations. Since the late 18th century, the new cult of friendship had prepared contemporaries to consider friends as highly important for their own emotional well-being and stability. Friends, in contrast to family, were freely chosen. In addition, economic or financial considerations 
quickly receded from the relationship. Instead, friends were there to share intimate secrets and experience the perfect harmony of interests, tastes, and feelings. Friendship without trust was unthinkable, and there were rituals to confirm mutual trust and outlaw, outlaw the breach of trust as the most detrimental act between friends. The coalition between friendship and trust was so strong because there was so much at stake. Those who trusted a friend made themselves vulnerable and sensitive to fraud and betrayal. They offered their trust as a gift, which is um, very kind of um, dominant in the German um, notion of Vertrauen um, schenken. It's a gift, it's something that I voluntarily give to somebody else without demanding anything in return. They did, however, expect to be treated as trustworthy. Reciprocity was built into the institution of friendship with its cornerstone and entailed that the trust giver was also a trust receiver. Again, rituals and practices to consolidate mutual trust prove necessary. Just because friendship was voluntary and unprotected by other institutions such as the family, law, or markets, it needed strong personal commitment and assurance. A famous example is, we are still uh, writing the year 2013, is the friendship between Richard Wagner and Friedrich Nietzsche, including Wagner's wife, Cosima. For about a decade, the relationship was as close as it could be. Nietzsche later talked about trust without bounds, Vertrauen ohne Grenzen. But limitless trust had its price. It demanded total commitment and loyalty and was constantly put to the test. Nietzsche eventually did not stand the test. He insisted on a certain measure of personal freedom, betrayed Wagner's trust, and proved to be disloyal to master and mistress. Trust, though, was not only to be found and worked on in mutual friendships. It was also relevant for members of larger so social circles. Those circles became extremely popular during the 19th century as associations such as Masonic lodges, art and music societies, as well as charitable organizations mushroomed, predominantly in urban middle-class milieus. We know by now how wide-ranging and multifunctional those associations were serving as marriage markets, as business platforms, as incubators of political involvement and agenda setting. Their inclusionary power, which was accompanied by an equally strong exclusionary dimension, largely rested on forging trusting relations among their members and members' families. Trust nurtured through weekly gatherings and active sociability once um, went far beyond family, kinship, and close friends. Without doubt, it was not as intense and vulnerable as in personal friendships, at, or in personal friendships. At the same time, it was more than what traditional societies had to offer. This approach does not imply that trust was exclusively a modern time phenomenon. Members of guilds, for example, had surely formed bonds of trust, but those guilds were only available to certain trades and they had not been based on voluntary membership. Thus, 
relations had been much more formalized and regulated, and trust was never at the forefront as an effective attitude. A different case can be made for those associations that were formed on a voluntary basis, like the Vertraute Gesellschaft at Leipzig, founded in 1680. Here, merchants met for friendly gatherings and confidential community in order to share joyful moments and collect money for the less fortunate. Such associations were rare and could by no means be compared to the dense network of societies and clubs that emerged during the 19th century. Talking about the degree of intensity inherent in trusting relations, we should mention another type of association that appeared in the early 20th century. Youth organizations that were marked by the strong emotional bonding among their members. A deep sense of mutual trust and shared emotions was what attracted adolescents, male and female, to the manifold clubs, groups, and bünde. A 19-year-old student who had joined a Catholic youth club talked about trust, and that's from the early 1930s, as the main bonding principle. And again, I've translated that from the German. I firmly trust my comrades, my Kameraden, in my Bund, who are thus called Bundesbrüder, brothers, confederates. I trust them because they loyally try to understand everything, what I say and do, and judge me in honesty and fairness. I can completely confide in them without a third person interfering. They also trust me. Our mutual trust is based on our common goal, to resemble Jesus Christ." End of quote. What is clear from this first-hand account is that trust in the youth movement has a lot in common with trust in personal friendships. It entails personal acceptance and understanding, sharing of secrets and intimate thoughts, fears, doubts, and wishes. It's founded on mutual honesty and fairness. Two elements distinguish this kind of trust from trust among close friends. First, it is based on a common belief and commitment, in this case religious, but might also be political. Second, it integrates more than two people. Trust as it was formed in the youth movement, or I'd say youth movements, was thus emotionally strong and intense, while at the same time extending to each and every member of the movement. This highly inclusive offer proved to be attractive to young people who joined those organizations and in great and ever-increasing numbers. In 1922, the philosopher Hermann Schmalenbach could thus describe the Bund as a new sociological category and way of existence based on emotional needs and experiences. Two years later, his colleague Helmut Plessner cast a more critical eye on the contemporary craze for community, Gemeinschaft. He warned about its radicalness and inbuilt totalitarianism and he was skeptical about the emphasis on closeness, intimacy, and boundless trust among its members. He claimed that the latter gave up their sense of privacy and were lost in the experience of a community that no longer allowed for distance, difference, and individuality. 
Plessner here explicitly referred to communist and fascist movements gaining momentum during the 1920s. But boundless trust, as it characterized those community-building movements, was by no means infinite and without restraint. First, it was accompanied by deep mistrust against those who did not join the movement, either through voluntary non-compliance or through formal exclusion. Second, trust among members was always precarious. Commitment to the common creed and cause was constantly questioned and put to the test. Treason and betrayal were fellow travelers, especially in times of crisis or repression. He, who posed as a trustworthy comrade, could in fact be a spy or traitor. Communists, for example, acting under conditions of illegality and persecution, could not afford to be overly trusting. At the same time, they depended on networks of trust on which they could rely. Jürgen Kuczynski, who spent many years working illegally for the Communist Party, first in Germany and then in this country, in London, wrote in retrospect, quote, those years turned us into better comrades, into better fighters for progress. But they did not let us be amiable people. We became deeply distrustful in our daily lives, while at the same time putting all our confidence in the great path of humanity, in the future, in youth, in the victory of the good and the beautiful. Um, his sister, Ruth Werner, uh, who was born as Ursula Kuczynski, who, and who um, actually was uh, a much better spy for, for uh, the Russians, um, was actually less, less self-critical about that. She, until the very end, um, when she died in 2000, was a, um, uh, did not kind of mourn the, le- the loss, the alleged loss of, um, well, being amiable. The quote highlights, uh, Jung Kuczynski's quote, highlights the value and esteem that trust enjoyed among modern people. A trustworthy person was held to be amiable, liebenswert. Kuczynski claims that the times did not allow him to be liebenswert and trusting. This is why he put all his faith in the bright future of socialism, when people would finally be able to lead a secure life and build trusting relationships among each other and with their political leaders. The GDR, where Kuczynski and Werner lived as prominent political figures, promised to offer those trustworthy relations and, as a mantra, repeatedly refer to the indestructible trusts, unzerstörbare Vertrauen, between party, state, and citizens. At the same time, the party preached revolutionary vigilance in order to weed out, ausmerzen, all enemies and agents of imperialism. The enormous growth of the Stasi apparatus, especially during the 1970s, um, in a period of east-western rapprochement and peaceful coexistence, cast severe doubt on the amount of trust that was expected and granted. And it confirms Hannah Arendt's observation that communist regimes, very much like fascist states, were based on universal suspiciousness and mistrust. As recent studies show, trust here was largely confined to family and kin relations and absent in the wider social realm. 
These studies finally invite us to think more systemically about trust as a modern promise and predicament. Why was it that people placed so much trust in trust, that they extended trust to others who were not related to them through family and kinship ties? Under which conditions could and did trust become a major regulative idea of modern societies? And what does that tell us about the moral and emotional underpinnings of such societies? I would like to introduce the term moral economies here since it allows us to link moral and emotional concerns to the structural setup of a given society and its dynamic interactions. The term might remind you of E.P. Thompson's 1971 article on the moral economy of the English crowd. Thompson, writing against the mainstream of reductionist economic history, tried to make a case for people's market behavior following moral principles, principles that were derived from other than economic logic. Those could be religiously motivated, something Thompson did not mention at all, or based on, quote, a traditional view of social norms and obligations. In the case of the 18th century food riots, those norms demanded policies of provision and market regulation rather than free markets and the protection of private property. Crowds protesting against high food prices did so with recourse to an old moral economy and its definite, as is our quotes from the 1971 article, its definite and passionately held notions of the common weal. Thompson, writing as a social and Marxist historian and acknowledging the paramount importance of the economic sphere, focuses on the marketplace as an arena of conflict, especially <coughs> in times of crisis. During the 19th century, factories and mines would become sites of conflict over economic resources. In any case, moral economies, as he conceived them, were intimately connected to economic relations. But uh, economic relations, in, in, um, as they, they re reflected in the production, distribution, and consumption of goods and commodities. But as he conceded 20 years later in 1991, when he revisited um, his earlier article and the, the reception that it got, the term could equally well be applied to other areas of human exchange, quote, to which orthodox economics was once blind. And as a brave act of self-criticism, he also encouraged historians to inquire, quote, into what is the moral and come up with a historical definition that he himself had been reluctant to offer. I cannot go into the depth of 18th century moral philosophy here, although I'm sure, as was Thompson, that the term moral economy was either directly or indirectly coined in this very context. I do, and I already did, um, however, mention one of the usual suspects, Francis Hutchison, who used economy or economy in a way that suggests, suggests human exchange to be a much broader and much more complex notion than what classical econ economists have in mind. In his reflections on the moral sense and its underlying passions and affections, Hutchison attempted to discern, quote, that just balance and economy which would constitute the most happy state of each person and promote the greatest good in the whole. 
economy here was not restricted to the handling of goods and commodities. It meant, above all, the orderly conduct of diverse and numerous and contradictory passions and inclinations, so as to render them compatible and consistent with the public good. Hutchison's emotional economy was thus both private and public, individual and collective. It comprised public passions, such as compassion and honor, as well as private passions, such as self-love and avarice. What happens if we add trust to those affections, passions, and inclinations that had to be harmonized and brought into a just balance and economy? In Hutchison's terms, trust can be viewed as a private as well as a public passion. It serves private ends as much as it encourages services to offspring, friends, communities, countries. It builds short and long-term relations, and it enables exchange and cooperation among people who would otherwise refrain from socializing and working on a common project. Such projects could be of a financial nature, such as trading goods or starting a joint venture business, but they could also be, could, could also be about funding a political party or running for parliament and mobilizing people's support. In all these and many other operations, trust is necessary, but it cannot be ordered and demanded. Trust is granted voluntarily and can be withdrawn al gusto. It functions like a gift that is generously given, but it also makes demands. It generally asks for reciprocity and it's based on conditions. I trust you as long as you give me reason to trust you and behave in a way that is in my own best interest. As soon as I have reason to doubt this, I can retrieve my gift and put an end to our relationship. The notion of trust as gift is accompanied by feelings of joy and pride of the person who gains someone's trust. To be recognized and appreciated as trustworthy is deemed as enviable and beneficial and is often rewarded with social advantages. But again, trust comes with conditions. In modern times, unconditional trust is a contradictio in adiecto. Trust considered as a bet on the future has to be based on some former knowledge and experience. We might remember Christian Wolf here who linked trust in a ruler to the quality of his government. It is fascinating to see how citizens during the 19th century and particularly in times of political upheaval used the language of trust to gain political rights for themselves. Trust breeds trust, Vertrauen schafft Vertrauen. This was how citizens in the 1830s and 1840s tried to convince kings and magistrates to share political power and draft a liberal constitution. Monarchs, as well as republican authorities, could only be trusted when they trusted the people and allowed them to participate in legislation and government functions. Once those rights had been granted, trust entered the relation between voters and parliamentary representatives. The latter perceived themselves as men of trust, Vertrauensmänner. It's very different from the, uh, the man of con, the con man in, <laughs> in the British tradition. Um, that these Vertrauensmänner, these men of trust, had to earn that trust first and then work hard to maintain it in order to be re-elected. 
Gaining people's trust is generally accompanied by moral obligations. Those who receive trust do so because they are considered trustworthy. Trustworthiness here entails much more than being reliable, consistent, and calculable. It's not just about keeping promises and delivering what has been promised. It's about the offer itself that is supposed to be generous, potentially altruistic, and aimed at preserving the security and well-being of the trusting person. Definitions of trust were usually associated with a moralistic overtone. An equally strong moral verdict was issued against those who betrayed somebody's trust. This was condemned as the worst character flaw and a clear sign of infamy, since trust called upon the trusted to act with deep moral commitment. Considering the high moral status of trust, we might wonder why modern societies put so much weight on trust, promoting it as an educational objective as well as an essential <coughs> component of social, economic, and political relationships. I have two explanations to offer. First, modern societies are in a position to both produce and afford trust. Structurally speaking, they render the ordinary life of citizens far more secure and calculable, mainly by building and strengthening formal institutions that make predictable claims and offer reliable services. The professionalization of the legal system and the extension of state governance are cases in point. They allow citizens to be more confident about the future and take risks protected by legal provisions and sanctions. Equality before the law, as well as inclusive institutions such as schools, the military, or the welfare system, all greatly contribute to an overall confident attitude. The figure of a stranger who could and should not be trusted has lost its negative connotations. Although it might time and again be evoked for political or religious reasons, it's not as ubiquitous and threatening as before. Broadly speaking, common institutions transform strangers into fellow citizens that share basic similarities and follow common rules of conduct. This makes it easier to develop trust among citizens. General confidence in institutionalized principles and regulations thus enables trusting relations on a personal level and extending trust to people who are neither kin nor family. Although this might still be considered risky behavior, the risk is calculated and no longer poses an existential threat. My second explanation draws on the morality of trust. It is noteworthy that modern societies put so much weight on morally approved values and emotions. This goes back to the beginning of bourgeois emancipation and the project of civil progress and improvement, directed both against aristocratic mores and the seemingly uncivilized lower classes, the educated middle classes defined themselves as honest, as sincere, and trustworthy. Criticizing the old regime as corrupt, dishonest, and self-serving, the challenger claimed moral supremacy, promising a better world, better not only in terms of economic or political um, efficacy, but also in terms of social fairness 
expressed by the major principles of equality, liberty, and fraternity. Trust is inextricably built into this world, both as its foundation and as its consequence. Trust is what keeps the modern world functioning in a smooth and harmonious manner, defending it against charges of social disintegration and cold rationality. Trust secures social cohesion and builds communities without, however, infringing on people's freedom and voluntary choices. Since trust is supposed to be conditional and flexible, it offers the option of withdrawal and resetting the clock. This logic underlies parliamentary politics as much as it was gradually introduced into conflict-ridden industrial relations. Even headstrong factory owners who had long fought against labor unions and social democrats came to appreciate workers' representatives as trust-building institutions, facilitating communication, and allowing for problems to be solved at an early stage. It did not come as a great surprise then that, here I am, the National Socialists decided to rename factory councils, the Betriebsräte that had been introduced in 1920, as councils of trust, as Vertrauensräte. But it has to be noted that fascism, very much like communist parties and regimes, completely distorted the moral economy of trust. Although they hijacked the term in order to benefit from its good reputation, they stripped it of its basic meaning and components, voluntariness, conditionality, and reciprocity. Citizens and workers were no longer given any choice. They had to trust without being trusted in return. By effectively reducing trust to pre-modern notions of unconditional fidelity, Treue, National Socialism thus negatively confirmed trust's genuine connection with modern notions of freedom and individual choice. It also confirmed how pervasive and attractive those semantics had become so that even totalitarian regimes were eager to adopt them while at the same time thoroughly subverting them. Last point, subversion though did not stop in 1945 or 1989. What we can see today during the last 10 or 20 years is a proliferation of trust talk and trust work. As early as 2002, Honora O'Neill has pointed to what she perceived as a growing culture of suspicion. Journalists and academics writing about crises of trust, in fact, bred and caused mistrust, above all against public institutions. Honora O'Neill truly had a point, especially in this country where journalists seem um, to generally be considered as not overly trustworthy themselves. But this is not the whole story. What we have been witnessing since the 1990s is an extraordinary surge of trust talk, particularly in business and somewhat less so in politics. Each and every conflict is being framed and presented as a crisis of trust. Banks especially find reasons to woo their clients' trust and have come to evaluate it as a major economic asset. Trust management institutes are mushrooming, and so are trust surveys. On the political level, the euro crisis has been 
framed as a crisis of trust between EU countries. Even more dramatically, recent spying by American and British embassies in Berlin has been compared with a breach of trust among close friends. We might legitimately ask if trust is really at stake here. On the one hand, the thick and emotionally hot interpersonal quality of trust is not what characteristically identifies such business or political relations. They rather work on objectifiable expectations of reliability and accountability. They do not have to altruistically care for me and respect me in order to function in my best financial or political interest. On the other hand, it's noteworthy that institutions like banks and other businesses deliberately stage themselves as trustworthy instead of, instead of reliable and accountable. The same holds true for international relations that purposefully use and usurp the language of friendship, trust included. They thus want to buy into the moral economy of trust and benefit from its emotional tr thrust. The thrust of trust. <laughs> this might come in handy, but it also runs the risk of rising expectations that neither the economic nor the political system can eventually meet. And I, just to prove how authentic I am tonight, this is what you see. <laughs> and it's, um, I liked it, I, I bought it several years ago, I think in Vienna, and it's, um, well, you see what it is, and it's a purse, actually. It's a purse, you can open it, and I can even, uh, if you want to put something inside it, uh, <laughs> I can make it back to Berlin then. Thank you very much.